You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning, everybody. My name's Dave. If I haven't met you before, and if I have met you, my name is still Dave. And it is really good to be here this morning. Doesn't the church look beautiful? How good is that tree? I mean, people more creative and more practical put this together yesterday. That is Stephen Hamish, Max and Kate. Can we give it up for those guys? Can we thank you for your time? <laughs> looks fantastic, doesn't it? Oh, sorry, I'm just getting this the right height. It looks fantastic. You know, at Harborside, we, we love celebrating birthdays and lots of other things like that. And we, we, I just want to celebrate something else as well. Our... Wonderful members, Dan and Kaylee, got engaged last week. So just give it up for Dan. Give us a wave. Yeah, there they are. Congratulations. We look forward to hearing all the details, Dan. We look forward to hearing your proposal story. It better not top mine. So looking forward to putting the pressure on all the single blokes in the house. Oh, it's good to be here this morning. You know, if you're anything like me, you might be thinking, with that reading, you might be thinking food laws, cleanliness laws, purification rituals, rites, what on earth is this passage about, and what could it possibly have to do with me today? I can hear you say, please make me care. Well, I'm going to make you care this morning. I want to make, that's my job this morning, is to make you care, because Jesus never debated, he never argued with anybody about anything that wasn't important. You know, today we're going to dive into the heart of what it means to be human. We're going to dive into the heart of what is profoundly wrong with us as humans. We're going to dive into humanity's search for the divine. And we're going to come out the other side with hope. That is the hope of today. It's going to be exciting and confronting. I want to be honest with you. This week, as I've been preparing this message, it has been exciting and confronting for me as well. So I think right now we need to stop and pray. We need to ask that God would speak to us because we believe that the Scriptures are not just some book that's really old, but it's the Word of God, and He speaks to us by His Word through His Spirit using just broken vessels like me to communicate that, that message So I'm excited with what God has to teach us this morning. So why don't we all just pray and just spend 30 seconds just praying to God and ask him to speak. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you brought us all here together this morning. Lord, we know that it's not an accident that we're here. And we ask, Lord, that you just prepare our hearts and minds for what you have to say to us. Lord, meet us wherever we're at in our faith If we have just a tiny mustard seed of faith, meet us there. If we're full of faith, meet us there too. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for all that you've done for us in this incredible journey you've got us on at Harborside Church. We love you. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Indeed. This is a picture of Tarana Burke. You might have heard of her, maybe. I didn't really know her until this week, Tarana Burke. She is an American civil rights activist, and in 2006, she founded the Me Too movement. 
She began to use the phrase to raise awareness about the pervasive culture of sexual abuse and sexual assault in society. Now, as many of us know, the phrase Me Too developed into a far broader movement following the 2017 use of the Me Too as a hashtag, following the uh, many accusations thrown at Harvey Weinstein, the famous Hollywood producer. Now, Tarana Burke found out what was going on, and she jumped on board the movement and gave her considerable efforts to the movement. And what happened next was a total avalanche, wasn't it? Absolute avalanche. Hundreds and hundreds of women coming forward, emboldened by the ones gone before, laying thousands of allegations of sexual abuse at the feet of prominent actors and industry heavies. And it didn't end there, did it? The aftermath has been just so fascinating to watch. In fact, it's just been the iceberg, the tip of the iceberg. Commentators have called it now the age of the takedown. Have you heard of that? We're in the age of the takedown. Politics, sport, and even the church is not immune from this movement. And what's been the driving force behind this movement is a desire to cut through the layers of crap, cut through the layers of lies and rubbish, to take away the mask and see it, peel it back and see what's really under the surface. And in all this, what's under the surface hasn't been that pretty. We are sick of hypocrisy, aren't we? We are sick of the fake. We are sick of the inauthentic. And people with growing force are looking to uh, tear down people and institutions that embody these things. So today... We're going to come face-to-face with shallowness. We're going to come face-to-face with inauthentic, with the fake. We're going to come face-to-face with what we would call religious hypocrisy. That is religion, which is rules and traditions that cannot deal with humanity's greatest problem. They just deal with things on the surface. True transformation can only occur at the heart level. Religion deals with things on the surface. True religion can only, sorry, that is, uh, true transformation can only occur at the heart level. And in order for that to occur, we need a spiritual surgeon. And it's a good thing we know one. So this morning, I've, I've called this message, Religion Can't Save. And if you're maybe new to the Christian faith, you haven't been to church for a while, you might be thinking, that's strange. I thought Christianity was a religion. Well, over the next 20 minutes or so, I hope to unpack that, that statement for you, that religion can't save. So this morning, we're going to look at sort of travel through our passage together this morning. We're going to travel through this section of Scripture looking at four things, okay? First of all, the Pharisees, that is the religious leaders, come to Jesus with a question. And with that, the tension of the passage is there. So we're going to check that out. What is the Pharisees' question? We're going to look at that briefly. Next, we're going to look at Jesus turns around on them and totally deconstructs their religion. So we're going to look at the Pharisees' question quickly. Then we're going to, they're going to have their religion deconstructed. And then for us, it's going to be a bit painful. It's going to be good. We're going to have our hearts exposed. And then ultimately, we're going to spend some time on the cure. So question religion deconstructed, our hearts exposed, and we're going to spend some time on the cure. So let's dive into our first point, our shortest one most likely, which is the Pharisees' question. Let's have a look at what God has for us in Mark chapter 7 this morning. Let's have a look. So what's happening here? What's some of the context? The Pharisees, that is the religious leaders, the scribes, the teachers of the law, 
come from the city, they're elites from the city from Jerusalem to check out Jesus in the area he is ministering, which is a regional area. Now, who are these people? They are basically the professional religious leaders of the day, a little bit like you know, me in some senses. They are the professional Bible teachers. They're the professional people of the church. Now, they've come from Jerusalem to check out, is Jesus the real deal? Now, this happened a few chapters before in Mark chapter 3, didn't it, where they heard Jesus was healing and teaching and And they saw him perform miracles, and they ascribed his supernatural power not to God, but to the devil. And they called him Beelzebub. You're in cahoots with the devil, with the prince of demons. Didn't work out so well for them. Jesus pointed out, how can a kingdom divided against itself stand? Didn't work out so well for them then. It's not going to work out so well for them today. We're going to see some sparks fly. Now, what happens? These religious leaders... They are sort of in the background checking out what's going on. They see Jesus' followers, that is his disciples, doing something or not doing something. So what they're doing is they're not washing their hands before they eat. The accusation is they're eating with defiled, unwashed hands. Now, I can hear you say, who cares? Who cares about that? I mean, is this like when your parents asked you at the dinner table, you know, have you guys washed your hands you know, we've got three young kids, and, and let me tell you, it's tough getting them to do anything, let alone hygiene-based. And they're at the table, and, you know, we can see the filth on their hands. Ah, oh, it doesn't matter. And, uh, but <laughs> if we were good parents, we'd make them wash their hands. Now, is that what we're on about here? I mean, hygiene is not on a high priority for kids. And let's face it, some adults, we've all been there and seen that before. But is that what we're talking about? Is this a hygiene issue? That is not what we're dealing with here. What we're dealing with is not a hygiene issue, but a religious one. Let me explain for a minute, okay? The Old Testament prescribed that priests, that is very senior religious leaders back in Old Testament times, had to go through particular ceremonial washing, ceremonial duties, in order to perform particular duties in the temple, okay? So in the Old Testament, particular people, that is priests, had to do particular things, that is, clean themselves before particular duties, okay? Here's the issue that's presenting itself today, or one of them anyway. The issue is this. Hundreds of years past, then we have, we're at the time of Jesus. What's happened between the, with the Old Testament times and Jesus is, the group of the religious leaders got together and thought, I know what's good for one person sometimes should be good for all people all the time. And they made it a binding tradition. And they called that the tradition of the elders. Does that make sense? So they took something that had good original meaning, and we'll look at that in one second, and they made it apply to everybody all the time, thus really separating it from from the, the, the good nature of its originality. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's the issue. They made it a binding tradition. They called it the tradition of the elders. Now, why? What was the point of that ceremonial washing in the beginning? Why was it stipulated in the Old Testament for that to occur? think about it. Think about that priest, what he had to do. He had to to go through so many different things, ceremonial washings. What's that supposed to indicate? It's supposed to indicate this. I am not clean. There is a distinct difference between me and God. Before I enter into the most holy place in the temple, he had to go through certain things. Now, why? It was only ever meant to be a symbol. What he was doing, scrubbing away, he was taking care of dirt and things like that, but it was never taking away sin. That's pointing to what Christ does on the cross. We'll get there in a minute. But it was only ever meant to be a symbol. 
And now what's happening? So it had good meaning, but it became twisted. And now it had nothing to do. It was removed from its original intent. So the religious leaders come to Jesus with this question. Here we are. Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? So that's the question. We've had some background to it. Now let's move on to our second point, okay? Their religion deconstructed. So they come with their question, and now it's Jesus' turn to reply. And he does so very politely, and no, he doesn't. Did you notice? He really lays into them. Have you, have you noticed that? He calls them hypocrites. And Have you noticed that in the Scriptures, Jesus reserves his most stinging rebukes for religious people? And these are people who are very well respected in their communities. He doesn't lay, into the, uh, doesn't lay into the tax collectors, people who are economically ripping other people off. He doesn't lay into the prostitutes. He lays into religious folk. You ever wondered why? I think it's because Jesus thinks you people should know better. You have been given the task of being about the things of God, and you're warping what God is about. And he lays into them. Absolutely lays into him. We're seeing our own takedown happen right in front of us. He's exposing their religion for what it is. Verse 6, Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, quoting Isaiah 29 here, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Hypocrites. Stinging one, isn't it? The word originates in Greek culture. Many of you probably know this, but the word referred to in Greek culture, um, an actor playing in a Greek play. And what they would do, the hypocrite would wear a mask. That's what, that's what the hypocrite in the, in the play was called. And so he would be playing a part. He'd be wearing a mask and he would be called hypocrite because it wasn't an insult back then. Uh, it was, he was representing someone else while something else was going on underneath. Now, we use it in a similar way, don't we? to describe someone speaking one way and acting the other. And it's a stinging rebuke, isn't it? I mean, have you ever been called a hypocrite? Well, right now we're going to get everyone. No, I'm kidding. But it's, <laughs> it, it hurts, doesn't it? I mean, have you ever called someone a hypocrite? What about these religious leaders is hypocritical? What is it? Let's have a look. What Jesus couldn't stand is what, that they were totally concerned with surface things. You think about the mask, right? That's representing things on the surface and you can't see what's happening behind. They were concerned with surface things rather than the state of the heart. Jesus in verse 8 says, you've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Now, what's the problem with this? So what? The problem with this is this, that outward action detached from inward reality, fails to deal with anything below the surface. It can't penetrate below. It can't deal with the heart, and that's all that Jesus is interested in. That's all that God has ever been interested in. See, the Pharisees weren't jumping on Jesus' followers to, hey, hey, you should be obeying the Ten Commandments. They were jumping up and down about something trivial that was detached from the heart of God, and Jesus gives us an example in verses 10 through 12, that thing about wealth and korban, what's happening there? Well, the fifth commandment says, honor your father and mother, right? But the, the religious leaders had, came up, had come up with this rule that they could come up with this thing where they would dedicate all their wealth to God, 
Therefore, they'd shirk their responsibility to their family. It's, oh, I can't take care of them. You know, I've dedicated all my money to God. You see how that violates the heart of God? It'd be like us um, giving an inordinate, an, a, a lot of money to the church, income, say 50, 60, 70%, dedicating that to the church, and then saying, oh, I can't take care of my family. It'd be something like that. God wants us to take care of the people that he has entrusted to us. And Jesus just smashes the religious leaders for this. He said, don't you dare use me as an excuse to not take care of your family. That's just one example of how these religious leaders are being hypocritical. You see what I mean there? I'm doing the right thing by God. I've, I've dedicated all my money to the temple, to God. But you're denying the heart of God. Okay. Then we, it seems like the religious leaders fade into the background. And Jesus is really, really keen to explain what's going on to the crowds and the disciples. Let's have a look at this. Listen to me. Everyone, and understand this, verse 15, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. That's with the crowds. Then they enter a house, and it's just Jesus and the disciples, and they're struggling. They still don't get it. It sounds a bit mean, Jesus says, are you so dull? It sounds harsh, doesn't it? But they're struggling because this is a paradigm shift for them. And he says this. Jesus says, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them, that is, can make them spiritually unclean? For it doesn't go into the heart, but as of course we know, it goes into the stomach and then into the toilet. It's not what you come into contact with or what you eat that makes you unclean. Now, that might sound to us like a really funny thing to go on about. Yeah, we get it. I mean, why make such a point about this? Here's why. Because Jesus is laying the foundations of grace. For if it was outside things that made us unclean, then we could actually do something about that. We could make sure that we didn't come into contact with anything. We, we could do lots of things, and, and then we could maybe deal with our problem. But it's not the outside world that corrupts. Many of you know I was in a band for a long time. Huh, band story, here we go. Um, <clears throat> uh, for a long time, and uh, we spent about four years traveling across America, and we felt like we were on tour all the time. And we had this one morning off, and we were in the great state of Louisiana, the dirty south, and we thought we had four or five hours off at the venue. We're not that far from New Orleans. Let's go. We'd never been before. So we drive down to New Orleans. And it's a, it's a pretty interesting city. We thought, what are the iconic things to do while we're here? I know. So we went to Café du Monde. I think that's what it's called. And we had a beignet. Does anyone know what a beignet is? It's basically a donut with lots of icing sugar. Very American. Um, and we loved it. We ate a bunch of them. We walked along the river. And then someone said, I've heard of Bourbon Street. Let's go to Bourbon Street. Yeah, let's do it. So we, it's in the old French Quarter. It was after Hurricane Katrina, so I was a bit beat up. But we went there. We started walking down. And let me tell you, we weren't in Kansas anymore. If you know anything about Bourbon Street, it's basically the red light district of New Orleans. We didn't know. I'm pleading innocence, okay? <laughs> and we start, it's, it gets seedier and seedier as you start walking down. And it was awkward because we're in a Christian band and we sort of brought other people from the tour with us. Yeah, let's go to Bourbon Street. Yeah, cool. And so we're walking down, and we're just, oh, boy, it's getting, oh, oh, eyes down. It just got seedier and seedier as we went. 
And it just, you know, worse and worse. And so we're just walking through. And pretty quickly, all of us just thought, let's just get out of here. And so we walk through and we get to the end and we're sort of joking. And then someone kind of jokingly said, oh, I feel like I need to take a shower after going through there. Because it felt gross. It felt dirty. You've probably been to somewhere like that before. Now, that's a funny story, right? But I wonder if in some ways, as Christians, we still think a little bit like that. Let me explain. We as modern people, we might be tempted to think that these ancient folks are quite quaint with their outdated ideas of what makes you spiritually unclean, but we can still be drawn to this idea that the outside world can defile us. We might think, well, there's just there's some places I can't go, there's some jobs I can't work in, some industries I can't work in, there's some places I just can't live. Because... In some part of us, we think the outside world has the ability to alter our spiritual state. Now, there's a few caveats, of course. There might be some jobs we can't work in that are antithetical to the Christian faith. There might be some industries we can't work in. There might be some places we don't want to go. There might be some places we can't live because we want to guard our heart for it is the wellspring of life, Proverbs 4.23, of course. But the truth is the outside world doesn't corrupt us. So Christians can actually boldly go. We can actually be the most unsqueamish people in the world. Have you thought of that before? That was a bit of a revelation to me this week as I was researching this. We can go into areas where maybe other religious sort of morally conservative folks might be squeamish to go, but we can go. You know, traveling around the US, I saw so many cities that in the 70s experienced what they called white flight where the white, you know, middle-class folks went out to the suburbs and sort of left the city to the minorities. And even, even today, people think that the city, oh, the city has this ability to kind of defile you, but it's not the outside world that defiles us. And this brings us to our next point, which is our hearts exposed. Jesus continues in verse 20. He went on. Jesus went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. Not what comes in, but what comes out of a person. you thought of that before? For it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. And here's the list. Sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. We're going to spend 10 minutes on each of those. No, I'm kidding. I'm not going to do that. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Jesus claims it's not what we touch which stays on the surface, of course, nor what we eat, which goes in our stomachs and then, of course, out into the toilet, that negatively affects our spiritual state, but what comes out of a person? There lies the issue. Now, here we're going to spend some time talking about two classic Christian doctrines that can't be spoken about apart from each other. The first is the Imago Dei. We are all made in the image of God. It's a profoundly wonderful Christian truth. It means that every single person is made in the image of God, and that gives value and dignity to every single person, no matter how young or how old or how deformed or how disabled. Every single person is made in the image of God and has value and dignity and reflects, is a mirror to our creator. That's the truth. But we are also marred by sin. That's the truth. The first couple of pages of our Bibles tells us that, yes, we are made in the image of God. And the third page tells us that there was a fall. And every single one of us is a mirror reflecting the Creator, but a cracked mirror, broken reflections. Oh, there's, we can see it, but it's marred by sin. Every one of our hearts 
is marred by sin. And this is so fascinating to be thinking about this in this cultural moment because there's so many different narratives going on. I don't know if you've noticed, and in some ways they're colliding. At the turn of the last century or last, last, I always get the centuries and the the hundreds mixed up. Which one is it? So the 1900s, which is the 20th century, is that right? Give me a nod. Thank you, Andrew. You would know. Okay, so the, the beginning of the 20th century, the idea of sin was really on the nose. I mean, of, of course, for many years before that, it's well after the Industrial Revolution and the Enlightenment. The idea of sin is, ah, oh, it's on the nose. The thinking was we would get to utopia, right? We would get to the pinnacle of human existence and flourishing through the advancement of us, through science and technology and human endeavor, which are very good things, but we'd get there without these outdated notions of God. We'd get there. The nations working together, we'd get there and forget this religious stuff. We don't need it. And then the world ripped itself apart twice over with the world wars. I mean, bodies just piling up in record numbers, just horrific. And what's just fascinating is now, today, I think every single generation needs to discover, rediscover these things for ourselves. Because that, that hope of a humanist, secular utopia is still very much alive. I don't know if you, if you speak to friends at work or in your family. I reckon most people think that we are pretty much good. Now, we, we, we all bear the image of God. Therefore, we all have an innate goodness about us. But everyone thinks, you yeah, know, we're pretty good. And if we just kind of pursue the goodness of humanity, we will get to... Hopefully no one here we will get to the pinnacle of human flourishing. But here's the thing, now it's our turn to be shocked. I think that's what's going on in a lot of these these sort of movements around the world is we're shocked. We're seeing the rise of neo-Nazism in Europe and we're thinking, really? Haven't we been here? We're seeing white supremacist voices getting louder in the US. We're thinking, no, can't be. We're seeing the, the sort of selfish, isolationist politics growing stronger, and we think, we can't be here. This is a, seems like a cycle of history again and again, and you think, man, are we ever going to get past this? The sobering truth is we will never get past this. That's a happy thought for a Sunday morning. Aren't you glad that you came? Bring on that Balmoral lunch far out. But we'll pass this. We'll never get past this. There's my old mate Karl Marx with that beard. Isn't that an impressive beard? Karl Marx beard. Karl Marx famously thought the problem with the world was an economic one. I don't know much about this stuff, but doing a bit of reading recently. And he thought the problem with the world is an economic one. The means of production, that is the wealth of a nation, so to speak, is in the hands of the wrong people. It's in the hands of the few capitalist people up the top. If we redistributed that to the workers and the ills of humanity would be over. But his ideas were implemented and we know what happened. (laughs) Humanity kept rolling on in all our sinfulness because our issue is not an economic one. It's not a political one. It's not a financial one. Our issue is a spiritual one. Back to the Me Too movement for a minute. For many people, this has been a rude shock. 
so much horrible behavior coming to the surface, right? And it's confronting, and it makes us ask pretty uncomfortable questions. You know, many of us are surprised because we think, these people couldn't act in this way. We put these people up on a pedestal and we think they couldn't use their power and privilege to abuse people. It's been a shock. And I, this just sickens me to say this next paragraph. This has been the case in our history as the church too. Despicable things have occurred in our churches around the world because so many people thought those religious leaders, those people in robes or not or whatever, those people up the front, they couldn't do bad things. They couldn't do horrible things to people in our care. They haven't. I think part of the issue is we maybe thought, well, we, we couldn't do those things, right? But accusations have come up and they've been dismissed because too many people naively believed that seemingly good people in power couldn't do things like this. Well, the truth, the sobering truth of today is Jesus thinks that we can. Right, where do we go from here? I think we need to take a lead from the Me Too movement. Let me explain it. I'm not condoning everything this movement's on about, but I'm interested in it, and I think we can learn just a couple of things. And here's one. I was talking to a lawyer friend of mine this week, and uh, she told me sexual harassment laws came into effect in the U.S. in the 1970s, a bit later here in the ni- early 1980s, and a good thing for jurisprudence, absolutely, and for victims of sexual abuse and sexual violence, absolutely. But what's been fascinating with this Me Too movement is, what did it take for all this to come to light, for all the attention to be, to be put on it? Did it take more laws, more legislation? No. It took exposure. Think about that for a second. It took courageous women to speak the truth, to come forward, to tell their stories, to expose the lies and the evil deeds of people. The first step to transformation, the first step in fixing our broken hearts is having them exposed. That's not comfortable. It ain't pretty. But if we want lasting change at the root level, religious rules and traditions, our own versions of washing our hands, could never do it. I had surgery a little while ago, and I had to get up on the table, and, you know, you've got to expose yourself. Because if you want to get fixed, you've got to expose yourself. And it's a bit confronting. But how else are we supposed to get the deepest need in the human heart fixed? The first step is for it to be exposed. I like here what Tim Keller, Tim Keller says. He's a a pastor in the U.S. in New York, and he says this, law can stop the results of a messed up heart, but it can't stop whatever's causing the heart to be messed up. And it's really helpful. So what can? That moves us on to our final point for this morning, and our shortest by far. We must allow the great spiritual surgeon to do his work in order for our greatest problem to be cured. We must put all our hope, our faith, our belief, and our trust into what he's done for us and lean on nothing that we've done. Now, let me explain that. What does that even mean? And let me say, that's not easy. Why? Because here's the thing. It's true for me. I don't know if it's true for you, but 
Here's the thing that draws us to religion, that is the doing of things in order to, to make our life mean something, to try and to make our way to God. What attracts us to that and what is so confronting about the gospel is this. We are attracted to religion because we are a bunch of doers, aren't we? We're a bunch of well-to-do, North Shore folks. We are influencers. We are doers. And we don't want to be dependent. We don't want to be utterly dependent. That's the gospel, right? We need to be utterly dependent on Christ for what he's done for us. But you know what this breeds, trying, trying to get there ourselves and make our lives mean something? And You know what it breeds? It breeds self-righteousness. Why? Because we take our eyes off what Jesus has done for us and we start focusing on what we can do and you know what? This breeds eventually pride because we're putting our hope and our trust in what we can do and what we can achieve. And I tell you, the biggest barrier between us and God is that pride, thinking we don't need you, we've got this sorted. See, the Pharisees, we think they had such a high view of the law because they're obsessed with rules. Wrong. They had a low view of the law because they thought it was doable. If we do these certain things and we're going to make it to God and we don't need him, that's why they rejected Jesus so much because he said, all you need to do is have faith in me, forget and putting your hope and your trust in all you can do. But you see, we, as Christians, we have an even higher view of the law because we think our problem is absolutely enormous and we couldn't fix it ourselves. And you know what? It's no different for people like me. No different for people like me. You know, I go and get, get my hair cut not that far from here. And, you know, there's a bunch of great boys. You know, they cut my hair and they'll let go of swear word. They'll talk about, you know, hanging out with a girl and things they do. Oh, sorry, sorry, boss. Sorry, you're a minister. Sorry, I shouldn't say that stuff in front of you. And I say, well, you know what? You can't be defiled by the things outside the world. No, don't say that to me. <laughs> <laughs> so go ahead, swear all you want. No, I don't say that. But, but it's funny. They think I'm sort of different. They think what I do and what I've done makes me somehow closer to God. And let me tell you, there is a temptation to think that. You know, I've been in the church for a long time. I've studied at Bible college for a long time. You come up to my office, I've got a whole bookshelf full of theological books. I spend my time in the week praying for you and preparing a message and all these kind of things. And I have a temptation to put my hope and my trust in those things. And to think, it's those things that bring me closer to God. But let me tell you, not one of those things counts in bringing me closer to God, talking about bridging that gap between us and God, talking about salvation, how one makes it to God. Not one of the, these things are good, let me tell you, these things are good, but no, I'm no different from anyone else. I can, put, I can be tempted to put my hope and my trust in those things rather than Jesus. You see, Christianity, the gospel, this goes back to religion can't save. That's what we titled the message today. We're almost done here. Religion can't save. Religion's over here. Christianity, the gospel, that is, people say the gospel, that's the central truth of the Christian faith. It's the distilled version of Christianity. They're so different. The gospel says our problem is absolutely enormous. There's no way we can fix it. There's no way we can contribute. You cannot do it on your own. That's a, it's a hard truth. It's a hard truth to hear, but I beg of you, would you please hear it, not as bad news, but as good news, more than good news, liberating news. Let me tell you why. You can't do it. You were never meant to do it on your own. That is liberating. 
because we can stop striving. We can stop thinking that I'm going to make my life count for something by all the things that I do. And, and then in a religious sense, I'm going to do all these things and maybe I'll put God in my debt and maybe he'll owe me. It doesn't work like that. And it is utterly liberating because we don't need to put our hope and our trust in the things that we do, but in what Christ has done. A pastor famously said, you don't spell Christianity D-O, you spell it D-O-N-E. I think that's so helpful. We put our trust in what Christ has done. The good news of the gospel is we can stop our striving, stop our own version of washing our hands. We might think these Pharisees are stupid. We do it. We try and deal with our sin and our guilt and our shame in our own ways. We can stop doing that and we can be washed in the blood of Christ, shed on the cross. I love this. 1 John 1, 9 says, and we'll finish in a moment here. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us all our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He takes our filth, our shame, and our guilt, and he forgives us. He makes us whole again. That's the good news. That's the liberating news of the gospel. It's something that religion could never touch. We are over the hypocrite, aren't we? We are over the inauthentic. Come to Jesus. He will never let you down. He is free from scandal, free from hypocrisy. He calls us to follow him and his promises that he'll never forsake us.